Hello and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic and through a few episodes of this podcast, we'll take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. Today's episode is the second of two devoted to our March 2018 issue on sensory biology and pain. I'm your co-host, Erica Gornberg, a third-year graduate student in the neuroscience program here at Yale. And I'm your co-host, Calvin Fong, a first-year MD-PhD student here at Yale, planning to enter neuroscience as well. We'd also like to welcome our special guest, Dr. Jessica Cardin. Dr. Cardin received her PhD at UPenn, where she worked with uh, Dr. Mark Schmidt. She stayed at Penn for her postdoc with working with Dr. Diego Contreras, and then moved to Boston to work with Dr. Christopher Moore at MIT, Dr. Cardin is currently an associate professor in the Department of Neuroscience and a member of the Kavli Institute. Thank you so much for joining us today. Ah, my pleasure. So um, since since you work on the visual system, I assume we're going to talk a lot about the visual system today. So um, we, we gave a little bit of an intro in our first episode about, you know, sensory biology and how sort of how vision is, is transmitted. But um, we wanted to maybe ask would you explain to our listeners the difference between the visual system itself and like sight as a whole, like the like the line between, you know, what are sure. we actually going to be talking yeah. about? So I think the um, you could do that either uh, at the level of just purely biology, right? So uh, what cells are transducing information about the environment, um, as or, and you could also think about it uh, in terms of something much more philosophical like your conscious perception, right? So at the level of biology, we certainly think about this in terms of a, uh, a path in from the environment to the brain. So we think about photoreceptors in the retina and uh, information that goes uh, along the optic nerve, and we think about how that information goes uh, from the retina to the thalamus and from the thalamus to the cortex. And uh, we tend to think about those early processing stages as almost like a label line, right? So it information sort of comes in, is processed at each stage, and then it reaches the cortex, and then your brain does something with it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the difference between what we tend to think of as sight and the, um, the, the sort of the... Uh, the uh, sensory inputs from the periphery um, as being sort of like the biological uh, piece in the retina, for instance. And we tend to think of our, our experience of sight um, as being what we perceive, right? Um, so it's more about perception. And those, those kinds of words, you know, perception, our conscious perception, those are things that generally happen at later stages of processing, higher order cortical areas. Um, they're a combination of the information that came in directly from the environment and whatever else happens to be going on in your brain at the same time. Yeah, so like we, like we said last time, it's pretty, it gets pretty complicated when we start talking about neuroscience and sensory biology, but it's pretty cool. Um, so would you mind introducing us to, you know, kind of basically what you study? So we actually sit at the interface um, between those things. So my lab mostly studies how your brain interprets what your eye sees uh, from the world. Um, so we, we really study how that um, very faithful representation uh, from the retina, from the early stages of processing, are interpreted by the brain in the context of other things that are going on, um, and how that translates to uh, 
perceptual acuity, you know, how good you are at seeing things in your environment, and what kinds of decisions you can make about the things that you've seen. So how did you come into the visual system? What made you interested in studying <laughs> all this? Um, I've had a, a sort of interesting path, I guess. Um, I started out studying something completely different. I started um, studying birdsong, um, and, uh, which is a great behavior to study because it's, it's uh, learned behavior. It's very robust. Um, birds are kind of cool. Uh, and uh, spent a few years doing that and then came to the, the realization that I, in order to get at the questions I was most interested in, I needed to study a system where we knew more about the basics. We needed, I needed to know more about a system in terms of development and cell biology and how it's constructed and how it functions. And vision is one of the oldest disciplines, right? It's one of the systems we know the most about going back decades and decades. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just a wealth of, of background knowledge to, to sort of build on uh, there. It's a, it's a cool path to go from, you know, birdsong to vision. Ah, uh, you know, it's uh, maybe typical, uh, you know, in science to um, to pull from, from multiple disciplines in the mm -hmm. end. When you start to try to generate a research program of your own, you, you, you need to be able to pull together threads from, from many sources. Mm -hmm. And could you describe what tools you use then to study? And maybe, like, explain to our listeners, like, what your model is. Like, how do you look at this interface between our perception and, and what we're seeing? Um, so uh, I try not to put any limits on what tools we use. Um, I am a big fan of uh, technology and reaching out and pulling in whatever tools we need. So we, we actually start mostly by asking what question should we ask? And then if we don't have the tools, we make them or design them or go find a collaborator who has them. So we use a lot of different tools in my lab. Um, I think it's maybe more important from the science perspective, just talk about what question is the most, is the burning question that we need to answer. Right? So our model is, is uh, mainly mice um, because we like to be able to use both genetic models, um, genetic models of disease as well as normal healthy brains to study. We also like to be able to use genetic tools um, and mice are very convenient for that. Mm -hmm. um, occasionally we use a few humans. So we actually do uh, a lot of visual behaviors in my lab um, and once in a while, we kind of benchmark our mice against the humans, usually Yale undergrads, um, <laughs> and uh, and that gives us some some boundaries on on you know perceptual behavior, what's possible, assuming that humans are usually pretty good at vi visual tasks, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you might be surprised at how well mice do on visual tasks. Uh, we don't think of them as primarily visual organisms. We tend to think of mice as paying a lot of attention to things they feel with their whiskers or hear auditory cues. But mice actually, um, although they don't have very uh, precise visual acuity, they can't see small, tiny details the way that you can, um, they actually use their vision for many natural behaviors. So I guess that's one of the questions is is the comparison of like how is the visual system that you're studying in mice, how is it comparable and then like how is it different? So like where are the lines that you can like make assumptions? And I guess kind of a related question, by studying the visual cortex, does that inform us about other regions of the brain or other sensory processes? Or are these sensory processes all very distinctly different? 
All right, so let me break that down to two parts. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are some very specific ways in which a mouse's visual system is different from yours. Uh, one of them you can uh, see if you stick your thumb out at arm's length, right? So stick your thumb out as far as it'll go. The area of visual space covered by your thumbprint. In a human, that's about the order of magnitude of visual space that one neuron in your cortex can see. In a mouse, you have to multiply that by a factor of about 10. Oh, proportionally. Wow. So mice don't see small details um, in part for reasons like this. Um, they have very sloppy uh, representations, if you will, of the spatial distribution of things in their environment. Mm -hmm. But they're very, very good at seeing motion, at seeing um, high contrast or high intensity um, things moving in their environment. And if you think about it, a mouse really needs to see large things coming toward it, predators looming over it that might want to eat it. And its visual system is extremely good at doing those kinds of, mm -hmm. solving those kinds of problems, right? Okay, the second question, so Calvin's question, which is how can studying cells in the visual cortex of a mouse inform us about other sensory modalities, right? So, you know, how can vision inform us about auditory processing, for instance? Um, or how can mice inform us about humans? Um, in my lab, we mostly work on circuits, right? So as opposed to working on um, things that are very specific to vision, we work on how do cells talk to each other? How is information exchanged among neurons? So we're not looking for things that are specific to vision. We're looking for core principles of how does the brain process information. Those turn out to be very similar no matter where you look in the brain. Um, also, the cell types that we look at in the cortex, in the visual cortex of the mouse, are present throughout the cortex of the mouse and are also represented in the human cortex. Um, so we're, we're really looking at fundamental building blocks of brain function. So it is definitely like translatable between the, the mice and the humans, even though, even though we're very different. Um, so you said it's important to ask what what questions you're interested in. So you went from birdsong into the visual system. What question drove you in that direction? And then kind of where have you gone since then? Um, so we had a running joke in my lab for a couple of years that the first paper my lab published when I started my lab here basically was a replication of my graduate thesis, <laughs> which was done in Songbirds. Um, and one of the big questions that we ask in my lab is, how is brain function flexible? Mm -hmm. right, how can your brain function and adapt in so many different environments under so many different conditions? You, know, you can encounter something that you've never seen before, but your brain can process it. Right? You, can, you can do a new task. You can see a new environment. Um, and so one of the ways that we study that in my lab is to look at behavioral state, right? to look at how the brain works when the animal is sleepy or alert or focused on a task as a way of understanding how the same neurons perform differently under different conditions. Um, and so that kind of question really drove me from um, neuroethology, um, you know, birdsong, into uh, the cortex in part because at the time uh, there were so many more tools to unpack circuits and different cell types in the brain in mammals and especially in the cortex. Um, but, you know, the questions are still the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And could you just quickly just uh, like how, explain how do you... what is neurothology first? <laughs> 
So neurothology, we should all be doing neurothology. Everyone in neuroscience should really be doing neurothology at any time we think about behavior. Um, but neurothology really started as a philosophical position that you can best understand the brain by understanding behavior and understanding behaviors for which a species is particularly adapted mm -hmm. um, or particularly good at, right? Um, so in birds, uh, learning bird song is something for which the bird, the avian brain, is really evolutionarily adapted with specializations over time. Um, and the idea is really that we should be looking for uh, tasks or behaviors uh, that animals are, are extremely good at and then trying to understand the core mechanisms by which the brain does those things. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. That I think different levels of neuroscience, you know, I don't do this level of neuroscience. Um, well, it's always been like a major question whenever, in terms of when people manipulate circuits, right? There's always a question like, how well does this map out in the real world? Is this too artificial right. when we like stimulate a set of neurons? Is this just us making something out of nothing, right? Mm -hmm. There's something to be said for. Um, really starting from big perturbations or big changes or big effects, right? Um, because sometimes physiological function is subtle. Um, then you know what you're looking for. Yeah, and if you can figure out what you're looking for, then you could go back to looking for the subtle things um, once you have hit the whole system with a hammer. Um, I think the problem in working with mice, uh, not just for us, but for other people who work you know, on uh, neural systems and circuits, is that we're looking at laboratory-bred mice. Mm -hmm. They're all heavily interbred. And it's not clear that they actually exhibit all the natural behaviors that a wild mouse would exhibit. Mm -hmm. So we work pretty hard to try to find things that mice do well, right? even under those conditions. Right, right. Um, so have there been any, like, major discoveries or therapies or anything like that from, like, or, you know, in that direction that we've seen in mice that have, well, in, in the visual system in mice that we've been able to... I think it's hard to draw a straight line from, like, mouse visual system to human therapeutics, mm -hmm. right? Um, as with everything. As with, the, yeah, everything. Um, also, we don't really understand the brain all that well. Um, so going straight to therapeutics is is really challenging. There have been a couple of examples where um, techniques have been uh, piloted or demonstrated or refined, uh, looking at you know mouse cortex, which then have moved on, and people are very hopeful that they will give mm -hmm. rise to therapies. Um, so things like optogenetics, um, you know, were piloted in cortex in vivo in mice. Um, you know, the, and the possibility of light-based therapeutics for humans um, is still very hot right now. Many people are working on that. Um, so there's, there's a lot. It's, it's a good test bed for, for manipulations and potential therapeutics. I don't think you could draw that, like, one-to-one -one relationship. I definitely yeah. that's true of pretty much every field. Would you just remind our listeners what optogenetics is for those of them that may not remember from our last episode? Uh, so optogenetics is a category of tool, um, of mostly light-activated proteins. Um, the original ones were all channels or pumps. Um, so for instance, channel rhodopsin, which was the uh, still, I think, the most famous and the original um, to hit the mainstream media, um, is a light-gated, uh, nonspecific cation channel. So activated by blue light, um, opens and allows ions into the cell. And this is now in uh, 
preclinical and clinical testing uh, for things like deep brain stimulation um, for uh, Parkinson's and other diseases, um, as well as in cardiology in testing for light-based therapies for pacemakers, to replace oh. pacemakers, right? So none of that has hit the right, real world yet, right? <laughs> um, but there is, I think, a lot of enthusiasm Right. Okay. And those techniques were originally um, refined and tested in simple circuits that we understand really well, like the cortex. And they're still fairly new, so it's not really surprising they haven't gotten to human level uh, treatments. No, absolutely not. I mean, we're talking about tools that didn't exist prior to 2005. Right, yeah. right. Very new. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So getting getting back again into your research a little bit, you, you said that you study um, the visual system in different arousal states. How do you um, determine the arousal state of an animal, and and uh, how, like how do you use that to study the visual system? So, if it was a human, we'd be able to tell, uh, you know, in part by looking at things like you know, head bobbing, and you know, <laughs> you know how much the s- people are slumping in their seats during a <laughs> seminar. Um, in mice, we we need uh, you know quantitative metrics that are mostly external. So in mice, we use things like the diameter of the pupil, um, is the animal moving, how much muscle tension is there, um, and uh, you know, sometimes you can use things like reaction time as a corollary of, of state. Uh, for us, one of the primary metrics is pupil diameter, in part because it is also a good indicator in humans and other uh, primate species, uh, as well as in mice. Uh, so when you get uh, bored, your pupil constricts. When you get excited, your pupil uh, dilates. Um, you know, when you see uh, exciting stimuli like food or uh, your significant other or um, even uh, something that's aversive, um, you show those arousal responses and pupil diameter as well. Mm-hmm. And since you mentioned you study vision and these different behavioral states, so how do they actually come together? How does a behavioral state affect your vision? So that's something that I think is still a bit of an open big question you know, for us. Uh, we have good evidence at this point that uh, behavioral state changes the way that your brain responds to the environment. Right, so in a really zoned out, quiescent, bored state, uh, we see less sensory responses in the brain than in an active, alert, aroused state. So actually, the the brain does not respond to stimuli from the environment very well in these sort of zoned out, bored, quiescent states. Um, which is, to be honest, something that crosses my mind every time I give a lecture. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's uh, you just don't take in information very well in mm-hmm. in those conditions. And here I'm extrapolating in part from mice to humans, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, our to to our our best knowledge at this point, um, that's I'm, probably true in humans too. I mean, there are the, always the people who you know you see in the back of the lecture hall fall kind of falling onto the desk a little yes, bit. Yes, exactly. Sometimes not even in the back of the lecture hall. And that's true. So. Since but never, th- never the Yale students, right? No, of yeah, the course. Yale students. Yeah. No, we are the best of the best here. Of course. <laughs> exactly. No head bobbing. <laughs> so, since as you mentioned, this is still a growing field, what would you then consider as possibly one of the biggest advancements recently in terms of our understanding of either visual processing or how it relates to behavioral states? Or hmm, how do you want to define recent? Last five years? Yeah. Last ten years? Let's let's just start with. 
Let's ask two questions within the last 10 years and also maybe in the field as a whole, what's maybe one of the biggest jumps in our understanding of sensory processing as a whole field? Okay. So uh, if you said the last 10 years, one of the things that happened, and not just to say visual processing, but to sort of uh, people who look at circuits in the brain in general, um, this we have uh, an enormous number of new tools, but one of them uh, that really transformed the field in the last 10 years or so was the ability to um, identify specific cell types in the brain. Right? So enhanced genetic targeting of distinct cell types in the brain. Um, really uh, kind of exploded our knowledge of how uh, neurons uh, interact, how they develop, how they migrate in the brain. Um, and it really also gave us a handle on um, disease as well, um, in, to be able to separate out uh, disease-relevant pathways in different types of cells in the brain. Uh, really brought a lot of very specific uh, relationships between cell biology and development and function kind of all into a sort of new and clearer relationship. So that was a huge step forward uh, for us. You know, and I think we, you know, labs like mine mostly work on basic function, uh, but we like to keep uh, disease and human relevance in mind always. Um, and so I think you have to sort of consider those advances uh, going hand in hand. On the one side, that lets us understand normal function a lot better. On the other hand, it also gives us a much uh, deeper insight into disease and developmental dysfunction. Sure, when you understand what, how it works when it's right, it's easier to see what, where it's going wrong. Yeah, exactly. And so as for Calvin's other question, you know, in the field, in visual or in sensory biology even, what do you think is the biggest leap or, or what has, like, brought us forward the most? I mean, I think we already talked about things like understanding that sensory processing varies a lot, that it's mm -hmm. not always the same, you know. And so I think the idea that it varies with state or engagement in a task or uh, even with disease state, that was a big change in my field uh, recently. Um, the other thing that's really been a big step forward is the idea of uh, identifying not just one place in the brain that's important for a particular function, but to be able to follow a circuit all the way from input from the environment to sensory perception to decisions being made in the brain to an output that causes an action um, on the, the part of the animal to, f to sort of follow that whole circuit mm -hmm. um, through the brain. Uh, that's something that, you know, really has become a major part of systems neuroscience in the last few years. And so um, how, how would one, you know, follow that path from input to output? How does that, how does that work? Uh, you know, it's um, what has, what is, I think you could have done it in many ways, mm -hmm. right? What's actually happened is that people have combined a lot of different levels of analysis, right? So a lot of different tools. And one of the biggest things that changed in the last 10 years was tools, right? We just got much more sophisticated in our genetic tools, our viral tools, our imaging tools. And so all those things kind of come together. And so uh, many labs have now been able to use a combination of genetic targeting and um anatomy, right, better anatomy techniques with, um, you know, two-photon imaging of uh, activity in neurons in the 
awake behaving animal with um, you know Calvin's specialty uh, electrophysiology um, and you know many other levels of analysis and and that's kind of mind blowing right you know not just the development of technology but the ability to use many kinds of technology in parallel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a very 21st century kind of science. Yeah. And I feel like that's very true of neuroscience, this like interaction between all the different levels and different, you know, neuroscience is a very interdisciplinary field, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And this, it would likely be too much to go through all these technologies here in this discussion. But for any of the viewers at home who are interested, you can likely look up things like the recent brain initiative, which the first phase of it was to develop new neuroscience technologies, mm -hmm. including things like optogenetics, the genetic tools, and all these things that Dr. Cardin just mentioned. So another question was, in our previous episode, we talked about neurons. So you just mentioned different cell types. Are you talking about cells besides neurons, or then are you talking that there are different types of neurons, or? All of the above. Um, so there are many different types of neurons, and although I think this is still an argument between the lumpers and the splitters, it's safe to say that um, there are many different kinds of neurons, both excitatory neurons that use glutamate as their neurotransmitter, inhibitory neurons that use GABA as their neurotransmitter, um, and I think the exact number of different types is not yet settled, um, but uh, we have genetic markers for it, quite a large number. Um, but also there's been a lot of interest in the last few years in non-neuronal cell types in the brain, you know, a dawning realization that there are many other cell types that we've been ignoring for a long time that play you know, substantial roles in both health and disease. Mm -hmm. and so these are things like glia and, and stuff like that, if, if our listeners are interested in, in you know, learning a little bit more about the cells that make up yeah. the brain. And of the glia cells, you have your astrocytes, your microglia, oligodendrocytes. And so these are all things that you guys can look up later if you want to learn a bit more. Or if we end up doing another neuroscience-themed podcast ever. We'll let you know. should point out here that all the technologies we just listed and all the cell types we just listed, those are all technologies in use here at Yale. They're all cell types and questions being studied here at Yale. Yeah. Um, those, are, those are all things going on locally. So getting back to questions, you know, you said you you said what brought you to where you are, like the biggest leaps in your in your field. What is the next big question that you want to answer or what tool would you like to develop or like the question I'm trying to ask is where would where do you want to go? What's your next big step for the field? Ah, we're going to solve the brain and move on, right? Obviously. Yeah. Next 5 years. Um No, I mean, I think, you know, so my lab always has, you know, health and disease interests going hand in hand. Um, and we've, uh, we've come to realize that, uh, you know, many of the tools and techniques that we used in the past were things that affected all the cells in the whole brain for the whole lifetime of the animal. And, uh, and in fact, that can be a problem because it doesn't really tell you a lot about specific time points when particular cell biological pathways are important or when particular disease processes become important um, or even when particular cell types are playing a big role. And I think that means that we need tools, better tools for manipulating and examining uh, you know, cells in the brain um, and very specific time windows. So in my lab, one of the things that we're doing that's particularly exciting right now is we're making use of uh, CRISPR technology. Mm -hmm. 
um, which you can also look up if you're interested in more details. Uh, but the CRISPR-Cas9 system is a system of um, targeted enzymes that was uh, originally found in prokaryotic uh, uh, systems and was is now basically a toolkit for mammalian or eukaryotic systems um, and allows you to go in and make targeted uh, mutations in, in genes of interest. Um, and one of the cool things about that is that it's small enough to fit into a virus. And if it's small enough to fit into a virus, we can inject it into the brain and we can do that anytime or in any place in the brain. So one of the things that my lab is doing right now is developing a whole suite of tools uh, that allow us to do targeted mutations to uh, induce a disease-relevant mutation at any developmental time point in any cell type or to remove a receptor of interest, another protein of interest from a particular cell type um, in the brain um, in combination with other tools uh, that allow us to manipulate or to image or to record uh, activity in the brain. Uh, so that's something that I think is also going to be a bit transformative for us as we go forward. And if you're also, if you're interested in, in more about CRISPR, um, our, one of our recent episodes was on gene editing, and so um, our listeners are welcome to go back and listen to listen to those episodes. Um, so, so as we're as we're continuing to discuss, you know, you realize how big this field is and how uh, I don't know interconnected it is with how interdisciplinary inter- everything yeah, exactly. is, right? So neuroscience is not just. It is about studying the brain, but in order to do so, we have to look into things like behavior, into the electroconductivity. We have to go use cell biology tools, molecular biology tools, gene editing tools, all the way up to things like what we're saying is optogenetics or imaging involving lasers and microscopes. So all these things are coming together to help us understand the brain. And for a related question, what else do we use to study vision besides uh, mice models and humans? I mean, not necessarily in my lab, but I mean, at Yale, for instance, um, people are also using flies to study vision, right? So uh, Damon Clark's lab on the other side of campus uh, uses flies to try to understand the uh, basic computational units um, of vision. Um, There are people who use intermediate models like ferrets and cats uh, to look at uh, more complicated visual processes. Um, Here at Yale, there are also labs using non-human primates um, to look at more complicated things like higher-level cognitive decisions made about visual stimuli. the classic prep, actually, the old school classic prep was the cat. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the original visual system papers were done in uh, the cat uh, visual cortex, um, which has really, really beautiful visual responses and receptive field structures and, and is um, just a, kind of a joy to use um, as, a, as a model for vision, um, but is not as popular now as it used to be, in part because... Um, we don't have all those genetic tools, right? And the mm-hmm. same thing goes for, you know, ferrets and, and other systems as well. Right, of course. Um, those interested in those cat studies, the primary authors to look up would be Hubel and Weasel. So, so um, you study sensory biology, and that's the, the focus topic of, of this issue of uh, YGBM. But how... Do you and other researchers take advantage of the sensory system to better understand the brain and, and neuroscience as a whole? 
So one of the questions that I get most often is, you know, because my lab looks at uh, models of things like autism and schizophrenia in mice, one of the most common questions is, well, why are you looking at visual cortex, mm -hmm. right, instead of looking at some other part of the brain um, or, or some other aspect of the animal? Um, and, you know, we, we don't actually, um, we, we don't focus that much on how the mouse is seeing things, right? We're not really so invested in vision per se, as we are in having a model for those basic building blocks of brain function, right? One of the great things about a sensory system is that you can treat it like an input-output system. You can put a sensory stimulus in, you can see what happens when the brain is using that information to compute uh, something about the environment, and then you get a readout from cells in the brain about what they thought they saw, right? That is... Uh, incredibly handy as a window into what the brain is doing, um, as opposed to some of the other parts of the brain like frontal cortex, which particularly in mice, we don't actually understand very well and uh, doesn't have this, this handy window into inputs and outputs from the system. So it's, uh, it's just a very convenient place to look for basic operation of the brain. It's very nice, I guess, when you can control the input exactly yes, as you want. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and one of the advantages, if I show you a spot of light on the wall and a mouse a spot of light and a cat and a dog and a ferret and a monkey, you all see a spot of light on the wall. Mm -hmm. So there are some basic underlying principles that hold true for all of those species. Um, and uh, and that can be a very powerful uh, model for looking at the the most core principles of, of neural function. Mm -hmm. Right. So I like to ask this question of everybody who comes in here. Is there any common misconception about sensory biology or your field that you wish you could correct, that you can, you can take this moment to correct if, if you would like? You know, I think um, oftentimes um, people perceive the basic research side as having very little impact on uh, clinical studies or on therapeutics or, or on our understanding of disease. And in particular, you know, that people tend to think that basic uh, research on the mouse brain, for instance, doesn't uh, have any uh, role in helping us to understand how the human brain um, is affected by, say, schizophrenia or Parkinson's disease. Um, I think that is definitely a misconception because as you said earlier, if we don't know how it works, it's very hard to fix it. You know, and one of the, the uh, best, most informative approaches we have is to put those things in parallel and to try to understand very deeply how the brain works when it's working and what goes wrong uh, in a disease state or, or in dysfunction. We are so far from having perfect therapeutics for brain disorders uh, that we really we have an enormous gap to fill in order to develop better therapeutics. Because very often right now we're shooting in the dark. Yes, that's definitely true. I definitely think that is a huge misconception as a basic scientist. I, I think that is, a, that is a great a great point to make. So previously in our episode, we talked about the sensory system generally, but once it's matured, could you possibly talk a bit about how we develop our sensory systems? Ah, uh, okay. So... Um, or specifically the visual system. More specifically the visual system, right. Okay, so 
this is a bit of a combination, right? Because you're talking about things like retinal development, right? And uh, the development of connections between the, uh, the eye and the rest of the brain. Um, and then you're also talking about things like the cortex, um, which are, uh, you know, related but somewhat separate developmental pieces here, right? Um, you know, and uh, for instance, in humans, you know, when you're born, you have much of that in place or more of that in place than, say, a mouse. A mouse doesn't even open its eyes until it's, you know, two weeks after birth. Uh, so those things don't map onto each other exactly, although there are similar developmental stages uh, in each case. Um, you know, neurons in the cortex um, migrate actually from where they're born, the neurons, uh, to, uh, to their final position. Um, and the different cell types uh, in the part of the brain that we study come from slightly different developmental places. So there's a lot of complicated um, cell migration and, you know, and uh, maturation uh, that goes on. Um, so each, each cell has to pick what type of neuron it's going to be uh, when, it, when the brain matures. Um, and then there's, there's stages beyond that where the cells wire up to each other. So synaptic connections are made between neurons um, in these early juvenile stages and then pruned back substantially um, as you know, animals and humans go through adolescence. Um, and then the circuit really comes into its final mature form after adolescence. So you know, people joke that uh, teenagers' brains aren't quite fully, uh, fun you know, fully functional or fully formed. That's absolutely true. There's still a lot of plasticity going on. Um, in development all the way through um, adolescence in both the mouse models and in the humans. Um, so there's a lot of stages there. Um, I think that's it's particularly interesting in a couple of ways. One is that there's obviously an enormous complicated framework for these things to go right, right? There's just there's this, this sort of cascade of events that happen during development um, so that every or nearly every cell and every connection is made correctly, right? Um, at the same time, there's an enormous number of possible places along that trajectory where things can go wrong, um, and those are usually things that are connected to uh, developmental disorders in humans. Uh, so I think those, those developmental processes are really interesting in their intricacy um, and in, uh, in how specific they are. Um, but also the flip side is that they're also very interesting in being points of uh, vulnerability mm -hmm. um, that are interesting to study. I remember one thing I read from a cancer biology from his perspective. It's amazing, actually, how every how more often things go right than things go wrong, and I think it kind of is fitting for what we know about brain development. Just how many moving parts there are, and how amazing a lot of it's still kind of how the neurons figure out where to go and where to target. But it's staggering, right? It's staggering that this all goes right most of the time, right? Um, that suggests that there are there's probably a big parameter space right, for things going right um, suggests that there is a lot of evolutionary pressure on things you know, going right, um, and also that there's a lot of comp compensation when things go wrong. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. There's a lot of ways that things can be compensated for during development. And so the, the big disease processes that we see um, that give rise to things like autism, for instance, um, those are those appear to be things that have gone wrong enough that they can't be compensated for during development. Mm -hmm. right. And I guess, so last episode, we also talked a bit about phenomenon like blindsight. Can you kind of go through the different parts and pieces of the visual system? You've already mentioned pieces like the retina and the cortex, but what are the regions and how do they kind of talk to each other? 
So, um, so Blindside is a great example, right, of the fact that uh, you and the mouse both have multiple visual systems. So in both humans and in rodents and also in monkeys, um, even when the cortex is compromised and you've lost all, you know, connections to those higher order uh, processing centers, um, you, know, you can still see motion, for instance. Um, and that's because you have things like the superior colliculus, which also gets massive input from the retina um, and it does interesting and complicated computations of its own and uh, does a very good job of detecting things that are moving in the visual field. Um, to make it even more complicated, there are connections between, say, visual cortex and the colliculus. So the visual cortex, the colliculus, the visual thalamus, uh, many parts of these systems are interconnected. And although we, we understand some elements of that uh, relationship, we don't really understand exactly how those parts all relate to each other. Um, this is actually a bit frustrating in some ways if you're a mouse model uh, lab, because we often find that very, very simple visual tasks um, do not require the cortex at all. So a mouse can do a very simple task like, you know, lick for a reward when you see a big moving thing on the screen. <laughs> it, that, the mouse can do great at this even with no cortex, right? And so we often find that the things that you need those higher order, you know, cortical centers for are complicated tasks or hard tasks with uh, complicated rules. Um, and uh, so, so even in a mouse, it's it's not simple. But that's hard to start in mouse because otherwise we have no hope of figuring it out in ourselves. Mm. Yeah. And I guess this kind of touches on the neuroetiology point we made earlier. Like, what is the role of cortex, right, without really understanding the evolutionary pressures behind it? You might not really, when you try to study the cortex, you might make the mistake of doing an experiment that doesn't actually require the vision. Yeah, I mean, it may be that you need cortex because it allows you to be flexible, it allows you to learn new rules and to master new tasks, right, as a site of plastic change. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Carden, for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Join us in July and August for two new episodes on the focus topic for our June 2018 issue. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to Philip Kearney and the rest of the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to our editors-in-chief, Yasmin Zakinyaz and Helen Balinson, and the rest of the YJBM staff. We're produced and written by Erica Gorenberg, Calvin Fong, Helen Balinson, and Neil Ravindra. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. If you would like to contact us, email us at yjbm at yale.edu. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us. We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to email us your thoughts. Tell them to us in the comments. You can also listen to us and share our podcast by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine on SoundCloud. See you next month for the next installment of the YJBM podcast.